0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a U-Active hybrid conference supported by Microsoft. I'm Moam Zaidi, and I will be your moderator for tonight's event. Now, today we're going to be discussing how can the European Democracy Action Plan empower citizens and build more resilient democracies across the EU. A big welcome to everyone who is joining us here in the room and also to our online audience and for everyone whether you're here or joining online remember to send in your questions or your comments into our Slido chat page I have my iPad right here and I'll be receiving your questions and we will come to your questions later on in the programme so do get involved. Um, Now if I was to ask you what is the biggest threat to democracy right now? What would you say would you say russia would you say china would you say social media giants or perhaps the threat is closer to home it's our own politicians and our trust in what they say now whatever you believe we are living in a very polarized um, world the polarization itself has in some ways become normalized the most recent example I can think of is the recent Italian elections. Italy went sort of full tilt from Mr. Euro Mario Draghi to the Brothers of Italy, a party with fascist origins. But that is democracy. That's Italy's choice. But it does lead to a fascinating question, or questions. Are the choices that we make the evolution of a resilient democracy, or are we being manipulated by disinformation in an increasingly digitalized world? I know our panelists have something to say about that. Um, now, in 2020, the European Commission had a democratic reckoning of its own, a new roadmap the European Democratic Action Plan, which is born to turn the tide against rising information, polarisation, curbs on freedoms and interference. Now, the three pillars are essentially promoting free and fair elections, strengthening media freedom and countering that disinformation that we see literally everywhere. In an increasingly digitalized world, of course, that last pillar is extremely important. But is this blueprint that the EU has come up with, is it really right for Europe, especially Europe in a changing world? And what can the tech and private sectors do to advance our democratic norms? Well, let's ask our experts. Now, this evening's debate is part of an event series, Democratic Values in the Digital Age, where Microsoft has teamed up with three academic think tanks, the UCD in Ireland, Globsec in Slovakia and Sedmo in the Czech Republic and we're going to hear from those think tanks but first of all we're going to hear from Daniel Brown and um, good evening um, deputy head of cabinet for of the European Commission's vice president Vera Jourova now vice president Jourova's mandate covers values and transparency democracy and rule of law she is by all accounts a champion of the EADP um, so Mr Brown it's pleasure to have you kick off our debate please go ahead
1: Thank you and good evening. I never heard democratic reckoning before. It Sounds <laughs> more grandiose that, than oh, than so I'm used do to. Yeah, no. So indeed, uh, uh, what was it? A year and a half ago, we came with uh, with the EDUP with the European Democracy Action Plan, in the middle of COVID. Mm. Um, so that was the context to react to democratic backsliding, to react to to the. Dangers that were, I would say, accelerated by, by COVID, election interference, spread of, of disinformation, threats against journalists, um, and of course the challenges brought by digitalization, as you mentioned. Um, I think it's, it's part of a general uh, trend in, in European policymaking that we want technologies um, and it, invest in them uh, and in the people uh, that can use the technologies uh, but we also want to see that they are developed in us and used in a in a safe way Um, with fundamental rights and freedoms that is the the european approach this is reflected in the european (coughs) democracy action plan you you named the three pillars uh, that were supposed to Increase strengthen the resilience of of European democracy and address the most vulnerable Parts of of the democracy. So that's why we have the 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 election uh, Part uh, and we've already done uh, quite a lot uh, with regulation on transparency of political advertising Um, there will be further actions on, on foreign interference in elections, on media, uh, the Media Freedom Act, of course, that is the most recent, but also protection of, of journalists uh, uh, against physical violence but also legal uh, abuse, um, and countering disinformation with many things that have been done with the Digital Services Act, with a Code of Practice that I'm sure that uh, that we will discuss uh, further, and these three uh, pillars are interconnected. Um, we are in a very dangerous situation. Um, people believe less and less that democracies uh, work for them. Uh, for that, in in that context, we have the Russian disinformation waves, um, which has a security aspect because Russia knows that we are a democracy. Um, and they need to undermine the public support for the measures that that the EU is, is taking so I think it's it's even strengthened uh, to, to what we have seen we have issues like uh, like spyware um, so that's that's the the, the context that will um, however not stay uh uh, I mean, we, we, without any uh, progress and, and movement. So the, the president of the commission announced uh, strengthening of the European Democracy Action Plan with a defense of democracy uh, package. So that is something that we will be working on in the next few weeks to months.
0: Okay, weeks to months. So I think you gave a good round of what the action plan is. Um, and as I touched upon earlier, the three academic think tanks, which have partnered up with Microsoft host workshops around the three pillars of the EDP. And they have questions for you, if you're okay with that. So, um, first we'll hear from Sedmo, from Anja Grabovits, uh, project manager, if you'd like to go ahead with your question, please. Yes, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm happy
2: to join this, this event, one of the workshops uh, in a series that you that you mentioned before. So, uh, I'm the project manager of Sedmo, uh, which is a Central European Digital Media Observatory, just to kind of, uh, you know, for you to understand who we are, what we do. Uh, it's a multidisciplinary project supported by the EU Commission. And we're partnering with actually eight uh, organization partners across the Central Europe. So in the Czech Republic, Prague, where I'm currently based, then Slovakia and Pol- Poland. So we're covering this EU region and uh, the aim of you know what we do is to firstly identify then research and also trying to kind of prioritize the sources uh, and causes of disinformation or information disorder which is what we call it as well Uh, and you know given that one of the pillars in the european democracy action plan is actually focusing on that on you know fighting disinformation my question uh would be Uh, actually how to avoid interfering with freedom of speech in the EGEP initiatives- when they deal with legal content.
0: Okay, I've heard that question then. So it was how to avoid interfering with freedom of speech- um, in the action plan when they deal with legal content.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're very blurry, Anya, but I I could hear well. (laughs) so, I mean, first thing, freedom of speech is, is not absolute. And, and we must not be naive. The, the disinformation actors intentionally manipulate uh, online platforms, the information environment, to undermine freedom of speech, uh, to, to drown voices. Um, so to mitigate these vulnerabilities, uh, it's actually strengthening uh, free speech and related fundamental rights. Second. Um, I just came from uh, from a discussion with uh, the Nobel um, Prize winner Maria Ressa, and she she mentioned um, a study showing um, the MIT famous MIT study showing that lies travel uh, further and faster than uh, than the truth. Um, so Absolutely. there there are incentives built in the information system that disadvantage uh, facts. Um, so this is fully reflected in the EU policies where, you know, when when it's not illegal, um, we have to be cautious. Um, but this is not a matter of freedom of speech. It's a matter of distribution of information. Uh, and we're not regulating uh, the content, uh, but rather ensuring that the, the actors in the information space have the capacities to... Um, mitigate the risks that their services uh, bring Uh, they are often invisible these risks Um, we need all hands on board by the way and and edmo and sedmo are a very important part of this of this uh, multi-layered issue that needs to be also addressed in a multi-layered way Uh, so that would be my maybe reply that this is not a a freedom of speech um, issue but rather a distribution issue
0: I think that's a good distinction to make, Um, and I hope any of that answered your question. Um, Next, we have Jana Kazas, research fellow from Globsec. If you'd like to go ahead with your question,
3: yes, thank you. Uh, So, as was said, my name is Jana Kazas. I represent Globsec's Center for Democracy and Resilience. We are based in Bratislava, and uh, our center uh, is conducting research in the areas on information operations, hybrid threats, election interference, and countering disinformation, especially now coming from Russia. Uh, Therefore, uh, the most vital part of European Democracy Action Plan actually really relevant for us is part of countering the disinformation. And the question I have is uh, related to the new code of practice on disinformation, and I would like to ask you, which are the three main novelties uh, of new code as compared to the old one from 2018 thank you
1: thank you so w- without stealing too much from <laughs> christina um, i will on general level mention first of all um it's a totally new quality of um Policy making, I would say, and a natural evolution. I mean, there are, the, the commitments are much, much better and more concrete, and they are underpinned by legislation that we have at our hand with the Digital Services Act now. Um, second, um, transparency as the underlying uh, principle um, in more ways. First, to check whether the the platforms and other actors uh, that are part of the code um, implement what they promised to implement and that there's a way to verify the commitments and their f- fulfillment, but also to empower uh, people like you uh, and, and researchers to, uh, to understand what is happening really in the information uh, space and, and uh, to have access to data uh, and I'm sure we will develop on that. So I, I, I stop here. But it's clear that we cannot rely only on platforms to understand what is happening, and uh, we need uh, we need to uh, let's say open open up uh, the, the the space and and the playground where the information flows um, are taking place. And the third biggest change is. Um, what we call the whole-of-society approach. I think we managed to, and thanks to Cristina and Paolo, predecessors, um, uh, we managed to get around one table the large platforms, small platforms, the advertising industry, because there's a lot of economic incentives behind this information. uh, companies providing technological solutions, uh, civil society actors, including GlobSec. Um, so having such a complex problem that you have upstream polluters of the information space, you have a um, system with incentives, uh, as we just discussed uh, fostering rather uh, lies and emotions than, than facts and, and being biased uh, against facts. And having perhaps um, increasing parts of the population, for many reasons, prone to, uh, to disinformation, it's clear that we can't do it only with legislation and only for, from Brussels. So, so managing to, to have everybody on board was, was a big thing.
0: Yeah, no, indeed. Um, and I hope that answered your question. I so saw Christina was nodding her head, so he did a good enough job there. Um, okay, over to our third question. Our last question is from Elizabeth or Liz Farris, the Director of UCD Digital Policy Programs from University College Dublin. Please go ahead with um, your question.
4: Hi, great to see everyone here today. That's right. I am Elizabeth Ferries. I co-direct the UCD Centre for Digital Policy in Ireland, and our centre looks very broadly at building digital policy capability for professionals in Ireland, but also at the EU level. And so we hosted the first session of the series in Dublin last month, looking at EDAP on the topic of strengthening media pluralism and strengthening uh, media freedoms and we had a really lively discussion stemming from that workshop and when you when we talk about the conundrum um, presented conundrums the multiple conundrums presented for media freedom in our digital age i, I wonder if we might have an opportunity now to break down um, some of the regulatory processes there um so my question um thanks to mr braun for being here today um my question to you um relates to the regulation of that space um particularly uh the media freedom act and i wonder if you might be able to break down a little bit what the key elements of the media freedom act are why is the commission engaging in media regulation at all given the sensitivities here yes yeah, go ahead yeah. thank
1: you yeah no i i think it's an important um uh, context that if we're talking about information disorders, we don't only talk about dampening the voice of disinformation, but also promoting the the trustworthy uh, uh, voices, Uh, and the long-term game is resilience, where civil society and media play play a key role, obviously. Um, uh, I mean, the underlying context of the Media Freedom Act is that the media is not just another economic sector. Um, it's a pillar of democracy, it's it's a public watchdog, um, and professional media have a key role in creating a shared reality. So we cannot treat it as, as a regular in, in, I don't know, assessing mergers and, and acquisitions as a regular economic uh, uh, operator. Um, so we need to have a functioning um, media market so that journalists can do their jobs, which which is not just a, uh, a regular economic activity, as, uh, as I said. Um, more practically, the, the Media Freedom Act came as a result of cases of uh, questionable let's say, acquisitions and mergers in some member states of surveillance of journalists and increasing increasing threats. And this builds on the work that we already did in the European Democracy Action Plan earlier on protecting the safety of journalists, both physical and, and 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 legal as i as i said the the slap directive and and the recommendation on safety of journalists so quickly the the, the key points of the media freedom act first of all there are safeguards to um, to protect the independence of uh, editorial um, activities or editorial decisions um, there's provisions on transparency on media ownership of media ownership Uh, and safeguards for um, fair distribution of state advertising, because that we have also seen being used uh, in in certain parts of of the world and Europe. Um, Third, I would mention there is an encouragement for online platforms to pay specific attention to professional media uh, and to content produced uh, through professional standards. Um, And last but not least, there is an upgrade of the group of media regulators into a media board, European media board, uh, which will set up a system of coordination of national authorities that assess, for instance, Uh, mergers and various steps done by public bodies uh, on the media sector Um, so there is a new safeguard when um, when there is a merger or there is a step of um, in the direction of media concentration this should be assessed uh, through um, a media pluralism test Um, And maybe one last remark, because we're talking about disinformation and and foreign interference as a connected thing, Uh, this cooperation of uh, national regulators should also uh, make it easier to counter uh, foreign interference that is often done uh, by, uh, let's say, fake media outlets uh, or whatever uh, they can be called. So this is this is it. Um, uh, As for the question, why are we interfering? Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I, I, I would say we're interfering. (laughs) (laughs) I I would call it really protecting and safeguarding uh, a a fourth estate of uh, democracies.
0: Yeah, no, and that's um, really brilliant to hear. Um, Well, thank you, Daniel. Um, We're going to have to leave this section. Um, So UCD, Globsec, and Sedmo, thank you for taking part. Um, And I hope that's grounded everyone um, in the sort of maintenance of EDAP. Okay, well, as you can see, these lovely ladies um, have been waiting extremely patiently. um, And what I'd also like to say, it's awesome to always see so many women... Um, you know, in a discussion like this. Um, so maybe give them a round of applause before they, um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so first of all, um, let's go to Christina Stump, um, Head of Unit Media Convergence on Social Media um, at DG Connect European Commission. Please go
5: ahead for your opening statement. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. It will be my pleasure to speak a little bit more about the new code of practice on disinformation. that, in my, new, in, my, in my view, is actually a true new deal in the fight against disinformation, Because, as already stated by the previous speaker, it has very strong commitments, it has a strong multi-stakeholder signatory base, and it has a strong regulatory backstop. So, let me elaborate a bit uh, more on these elements. So, first of all, strong commitments, uh, strong tools. While the signatories have really looked very deeply, unsurprisingly, they did not find one magic, magic pill, one silver bullet to fight disinformation. At the same time, uh, they came up with a very strong and powerful toolbox, with a variety of tools that, all together, can be very efficient in fighting disinformation. What are these tools, just on a very high level? One of them is the monetization. That means basically to, fat, to cut the financial incentives uh, when it comes to profi- propagating this information. And this we have seen regarding the COVID ca- crisis, apart from players who are disseminating this information for political agenda. There are also a lot of players who are also disseminating this information because, in order to make money. Neither of the two should get financial incentives to do that. Then another important area is a special area of advertising, political advertising. Here the code goes hand in hand with the the legislative initiative on political advertising. with industry led tools uh, to make sure that political advertising can be easily recognized by the users. Then another important area, in particular in the current geopolitical situation, is uh, to provide tools uh, against manipulative behavior. So, all these techniques that are used uh, to make this information viral and to spread them. Then, another very important area is user empowerment tools. So, basically, to equip the users with good tools to be able to recognize this information, also to flag this information, and to navigate better in the current online environment. Then, another important area is fact checking. Fact checking is a very useful and very powerful tool. And uh, the code makes sure uh, that this is uh, used EU wide uh, as long as as well as all other commitments in the code that have to be implemented across the EU. And last but not least, data access is obviously a very important uh, um, instrument in this area to make sure that there is transparency, that researchers can look uh, into the data to uh, study and respond to this information. So this is a very high level overview of the commitment. So this is one of the key strengths of the code to come up with this variety of tools, and you will see None of them is about removal, so here we also are very mindful of the freedom of speech. Then the other strength is indeed the very strong signatory base, as already mentioned. Not just big fa- platforms are on board, but also smaller platforms <clears throat> where this information is also present. Civil society organizations, fact checkers, uh, at the advertising sector in order to be efficient on, on the monetization. And all these players, all together, can be uh, much more powerful to fight this information, because no player alone uh, is able to fight this information uh, on its own. uh. And then, uh, to come uh, to the regulatory issue, if uh, uh, um, this code uh, should uh, not be sufficient enough uh, to to fight, uh, which is already the case, Um, there is the the Digital Services Act behind. So basically here we have a very strong regulatory tool to make sure that this code is working in practice. Okay, lovely.
0: Thank you so much. It's um, backed up by legislation there. Um, Next, we'll go to our online panellist, André Gobans, member of the European Economic and Social Committee. Please go ahead for your opening statement.
6: it's such a shame i cannot be with you in in brussels i'm here in czech republic where we have the eu presidency and actually i i think it's extremely important that we as well as civil society representatives representing civil society in brussels at the eu level go into the regions and and take a closer look what's happening in the member states so so sorry for not being in the so called european capital but uh, being in a, another place where it's actually crucial as well to, to be able to, to have a look and support and strengthen a democracy. Well, the Economic and Social Committee is very much in favour of the action plan. It won't be a big surprise, but uh, it won't be a big surprise for you that actually we say it's far not enough. It's extremely welcome, but actually it is only a first and a small step, so to say, ahead in the right direction and most uh, most probably Alexandrina will point out several things as well, who who will speak right after me, on how things should be done. The things which we demand is that actually media is great and important, elections is great and important, uh, everything about ads and and slaps and everything is key and crucial. But actually, don't we forget one important puzzle piece in this uh, this, uh, game, when strengthening democracy because democracy needs action every day and every day by us as citizens, as individuals and as organized civil society. Both is crucial, individual level and organized uh, input and, and cooperation in bringing our ideas forward for a better future and a better democracy. And this is the key piece which is missing at this moment or actually quite weak in the action plan so we very much hope that for example as well with uh, mrs Uh, van der leyen's speech uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago where she said that actually democracy needs to be defended and we need more action than already um, agreed on that uh, i hope that in this package there will be a fourth pillar so to say as we demand it in the action for the action plan which would face uh, f- focus on civil society and a vibrant environment where this civil society can act, engage and create its uh, its own future.
0: Okay, thank you so much. You brought up um, a fourth pillar. And Alexandrina um, Naimovic, you also, just before we actually went live, you were also talking about a fourth pillar. So. Let me now go over to you. You are Secretary General at the European Civic Forum. Please go ahead with your opening statement.
7: Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, Andrijs very nicely uh, uh, bridged between uh, institutions and civil society, and this is precisely what uh, we are trying to do at the European Civic Forum, to bridge between citizens uh, and uh, European institutions. Uh, I do agree that we, we need civil society to be considered a fourth, a fifth pillar, depending on on the different strategies and action plans. Because, indeed, civil society not only plays a crucial role in defending democracy. Civil society is an important checks and balances element, as it is recognized, indeed, in the European Democracy Action Plan. But also, civil society is daily in contact with citizens with their needs. So civil society can be a very valuable ally for the institutions not only to promote and to help institutions enact and enforce legislation, but also to alert on the shortcomings of European and national policies. And this brings me to a dimension that I would like to uh, touch upon while thinking about democracy. We very much discussed so far about a functional aspect of democracy, which, of course, uh, is a very important one. Uh, But I would like to draw attention on the fact that, indeed, uh, citizens look at how democracy works. But I would tend to think about the citizens that look more into what democracy delivers, in terms of policies that leave no one behind. And if we look also at the... um, Um, Daniel Brown just said that uh, there are certain populations that are more prone to disinformation or uh, to, let's say, fall in the trap of uh, xenophobic, nationalist, uh, regressive populist narratives. And uh, these people, maybe it's not necessarily because they were born autocrats in their minds, but if we we look at research and uh, at opinion polls, well, it turns that these people actually are those that would be at the margins of our societies. Uh, They feel left behind. They have the sensation that current policies uh, do not deliver for their needs. So... I would invite us all, and particularly the European Commission and the European Union, while thinking about how to fix democracy, to constantly have in mind these two legs of democracy, the policies that we deliver and the mechanisms that we have to safeguard uh, democracy and to, to make the society participate, not only once uh, in, uh, in every five years through elections, but also to have civil society empowered, <laughs> and Andres is uh, very <laughs> much agreeing, with, you, yeah, uh, agreeing yeah. with me, civil society empowered together uh, with the social partners and businesses to really be part of a European policy dialogue that we still need,
0: I think, to widen and to, to construct. So let me ask, um, just as a follow-up question then, and let's open up this debate then. Um, Do you think democracy is in crisis? Oh, I do. (laughs) Expand, please. I do. uh, And uh,
7: well, I think we are are living a multifold crisis of democracy. Uh, You introduced by saying that, uh, of course, democracy is threatened from outside, democracy is threatened from within. And I think the biggest threat to democracy is citizens losing trust. In democracy, as such, as a principle of governance, and I think this happens not necessarily. Maybe the root cause is not necessarily in in the first place disinformation. I would I would rather look at disinformation as an effect of it, as a as an easy way actually to build political capital on people's dissatisfaction with democracy. So
0: yeah, I think that it is very important to look at the root causes. Okay. Well, Andres let me come back to you again. Um, Do you think that the norms of the common ground that we once had, um, that we once shared, are sort of outdated um, because the world is now just so different?
6: Whoa. <laughs> if I might start <laughs> with what, where Alexandrina ended, she said actually that uh, democracy is under threat. At the meantime, democracy is as attractive as never before. What we see, for example, the big fear of the tyrant in Russia. Why does he bomb Ukraine? It's because he fears that he will lose and he knows that he's a loser and he will lose power if there would be a fair democratic uh, country system in in his own country and he fears that Ukraine already has proven that in a democratic state you can live better and his own people were asking why can't we live as the Ukrainians live. So it's actually he's feeling about his personal Benefits uh, enriching uh, well all those thieves around him and the, the attractiveness of democracy and also in China we see that people go or even Iran people are going on out in the streets demanding uh, peace and participation. So just starting with this, but then again, as uh, linking that to your question about the new challenges which we have, yes. We do have uh, new and bigger challenges, and these are actually quite well, again, with the first step in this European action plan covered by the Commission's uh, plans, because I think the new realities that we can live, each one of us can live in a bubble uh, without real connection to real world, well, this is a new challenge which we cannot ignore, and where we, as European societies, that's not a thing which we can do at national level because member states are not strong enough when uh, dealing with tech giants and and all these uh, developments which exist out there, is we have to see how to, how well populism, radicalism, uh, also terroristic ideas are not m- uh, misusing uh, social media. Uh, and why uh, that they don't get amplified, but that there is also access to quality uh, information to everyone. So some kind of challenge for our bubbles, I would say, that is needed. And that is a new system, which most probably 10 years ago was uh, quite different.
0: Well, is the action plan, I mean, perhaps Daniel can take this one. Is the action plan a kind of realization that, you know, a previously Um, economic union that became a political union of 27 member states um, of people and cultures, different identities, different cultures, different languages, different legal systems, different everything, that it was always going to have bumps in the roads and problems, and therefore you needed to maybe come up with something a little bit different for the times and for the changes that we are seeing across the member states.
1: Yeah. That... Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah as I said, the, the the context was really multiple crises that accelerated. I think trends that that we have seen um, for a longer longer time. The the democratic backsliding is is not uh, uh, not totally uh, not totally new. Um, and what we tried to do in the European Democracy Action Plan was to look really. What, what you can call upstream and downstream. Um, so downstream, looking at the resilience of societies, of people, and I fully agree uh, on the importance of civil society there, and media. I think they, they are the frontline fighters in the information space uh, for democracy and, and the principles that, uh, that bind us uh, together in the European Union. We have to look at... Uh, how the information disorders and the democratic backsliding is actually being done what are the what are the channels what are the ways and there are actors um, in this space that that have not been accountable but that have assumed a very important role in the society and in democracy i mean 20 years ago uh, the platforms were just a collection of e-shops. If I make it very uh, uh, oversimplistic, uh, but we see that there is no online environment and offline life. There, it's just one life, uh, and this this has to be uh, remedied, and, and and the responsibilities of of actors have to be have to be changed. So uh, and besides <coughs> that, besides this environment, um, there are malicious actors. Uh, within the EU and and outside, um, so I think it it was a realization that uh, and it was said here. That in order to preserve democracy, with all these threats, internal, external, and the incentives built in the system, we need we need to nurture democracy and we need to have legal framework where it's missing uh, with democratic uh, oversight. Um, And we need to have, I mean, if you look at the the EDA, the the European Democracy Action (laughs) Plan, it's a work plan. It's it's loads of initiatives that we are rolling out to... uh, to increase the resilience, that, 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 that is something I would come back to. Uh, this is not going to be a magic bullet and a, and a static thing. And, and yes, we will develop it further. And an I mean, you could call it e up to the new defense of democracy package, I'm happy to elaborate later. But this, this is what I would say. Okay, so say.
0: a work plan to fix um, democratic backsliding. Um, Cornelia, your thoughts. Did I also miss you out for your opening statement? Uh yes. <laughs> I apologize. The That's list is fine. So long.
3: <laughs> I'll make it a little bit longer now. Yeah, so please please go ahead. I apologize Good. for that. No, no, don't worry, don't worry. So I'll go back to your very first question and in like where we are with democracy. And so the backsliding as as Daniel um explained is not um is not only happening in Europe, it's a global um uh, situation and and so as a global company um, we're looking at this in in all areas where where it is happening um, obviously we've seen it a lot in the United States um, with the 2016 2020 elections we've seen it in Brazil. And we've also seen reactions coming from different governments around the world that act fairly fiercely. in some, like in Australia, for example, or in some where, unfortunately, the regulatory response is missing. And you can definitely see that in other, in other countries. So. Um, as multi-layered, the responses are from uh, from the European Commission. We have addressed this also in a multi-layered approach. So we've been looking at, for example, what's happening on the media's news front, uh, with more detailed analysis in in how there has been a decline in local news media rooms across the United States. What have we we have done? Certain projects in this space, first as a pilot in the United States, we're trying to roll this out here, um, and many of the initiatives that we have driven in the United States, we are reflecting how to expand them to Europe. Um, but in Europe, of course, the regulatory environment is a little bit different. So we have, I think. Um, a twofold um, role here, first of all, as a stakeholder in society where we are advancing public private partnerships. I think public private partnerships are of essence in in tackling the multitude of different issues. I'll come back later on to what that in, uh, involves, for example, in the context of foreign interference and cyber threats and analysis that companies like ours can provide. Um, but also as an accuracy of many of the regulatory initiatives that the Commission has started. Uh, the COP, we are a signatory, of course, uh, the DSA. We are an accuracy, um, We are in scope and, and basically with all our digital services to, to different degrees. Um, how that relates back. Um, even with the Media Freedom Act, um, we might actually be regulated on both sides. Well, we, we're still looking at this in, in which of our services could potentially be considered a, a media publisher versus where we are definitely in scope is as an online platform. And so that's an analysis that's still uh, ongoing. It's going to be really interesting. In looking at this in, in, in a multiple, multifaceted role. So the, I hope we have a little bit more time later on to talk about the Media Freedom Act because I think that's sort of like the crown jewel, maybe, of the European Democracy Action Plan um, because it goes to the essence of um, how to how to safeguard media, media pluralism, and that's a very, very complicated role of the Commission to take because of the competences they have vis-a-vis the Member States. And I will just say that I congratulate the Commission for, for doing this bold step in, in going into this direction. And we'll, we'll have to see how, how this goes through the legislative process. So I find that a really interesting part of the, of the discussion. Um, from a, from a Microsoft perspective, where we can really support many of the aspects, is of course, where technology comes into play. So um, that is in um, identifying, for example, deepfakes, in providing authoritative content, um, and in particular in, in supporting a threat analysis in the context of disinformation. Um, threats from from uh, foreign interference in particular now of course in the context of russia so i'll stay there but there we can dig into all of them maybe just on the political advertising it's a really interesting one for us because microsoft on its services, and and Christina, you know that from the COP, we do not allow political advertising on our services. But of course, once there is a regulation, now we are looking at the regulation and look at how it is defined, because ultimately we might have, in our terms of use, currently a slightly different definition of political advertising than the outcome of that legislative file. And then we would need to adopt accordingly. And so there's, there's this multitude of roles we play, um, and uh, I, I wish we, we, we can focus a lot on the public-private partnership because there has to be this understanding that all, all players in a democracy can contribute to this, whether this is civil society on my right, institutions or, or industry, frankly.
0: Well, let's pick up on what you're saying about um, the role that big tech sort of plays. Um, and if we think about, you know, as you were saying, deep fakes, I mean, technology, digitalization is all advancing um, at such a pace now. Um, do you think, I mean, for you, you mentioned, you know, obviously the US, you've also mentioned Europe. What was the sort of seismic event in recent times, would you say, that really sort of made tech sort of look up and realize and say, oh, gosh, this disinformation is getting way out of control. I mean, for me, I would say, especially for Europe, it would be the time of Brexit, because they seem to have learnt from the U.S. what they could do. And we saw the sort of misinformation that went on um, during Brexit and since Brexit. So was that maybe a point, especially for the EU um, and for tech companies, that they saw that, you know, we can literally weaponize people for our causes? And did it make you know big tech or people at like Microsoft just pause for a second there?
3: I think for Europe, it was certainly the awakening Brexit, the Brexit vote, And uh, many, as I certainly remember, the, the next day. And I think the, all of us remember the next day. <laughs> so this sheer disbelief yeah. that this is happening. Um, But I don't think it was the first sign. I think there were other, uh, other events that, frankly, were eventually, when when you think about life-threatening events, more, more relevant, like Myanmar, for example, uh, the genocide there, um, and and of course, you know, the the elections, where when you, when you, and I, you know. I just read what everybody else reads in 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 the newspapers and the books that have been uh, have been published in the meantime, like The Ugly Truth, for example, where you are like, you know, where I think there has been issues, Cambridge Analytica might have been Mm -hmm. also an awakening in, in this space. So there there have been several that that led to, at least in Microsoft, to realization that there needs to be something done. And our services, obviously, are not the main vectors in the disinformation space. Um, so we come into this in leaning in both in how we are regulated, but also in what we can else do and, and how we can else support these, these efforts uh, that are undertaken by many civil society groups, think tanks, and, and obviously the European Commission
0: talking to the European Commission, Ms. Stump um, Christina. Um, obviously, digitalisation, disinformation go hand in hand, but just picking up on, you know, these sort of big seismic events, things like Brexit, um, or, you know, the, the events that, that sort of led us to this big, you know, that things were happening. Um, is there a feeling that around this sort of period, or 2015, 2016, that big tech sort of realised that we can literally destroy democracies, if you want to. Are they the biggest threat to our democracy?
5: I believe that uh, online platforms have certainly a big potential to be uh, vectors of the spread of disinformation, or uh, um, to be a certain risks in the way they are distributing the um, information and disinformation. At the same time, I believe that uh, we should not see them as a threat, but rather adre- address their pro- potential uh, for spreading disinformation. Because in the same way that it can be used to spread disinformation, it can bring to people uh, very useful information. And maybe just to add uh, uh, one other uh, wake-up call, or rather uh, a big crisis when it comes to disinformation, that was the COVID crisis. It is less related to democracy, Um, In the strict sense, at the same time, it has shown very well that while uh, uh, science was able to produce uh, safe and efficient vaccines in record time, on social media, in record time, uh, this information was spread in a scale that was basically threatening to undermine all these efforts. So I think with this, now with the Ukraine crisis, we see it very well how... uh, how this can really destroy efforts in different areas. At the same time, I believe that now we know more, and also we have to use the potential of technology to reduce these risks when it comes to um, recognising this type of disinformation, fakes they uh, use the virality and I think in the code we have a lot of instruments there uh, that builds on technology, that also builds on the use of sos- civil society fact-checkers that all together uh, can reduce these risks that online platforms bring.
0: Okay, well then let's um, come to EDAP then. Um, Daniel, your boss, she said that democracy can't be taken for granted and this democracy action plan is designed to empower citizens and build resilient democracies. But what if empowering them today means giving them the power to say and do as they please, rather than perhaps force them to uphold a set of beliefs that no longer are applicable to what we are going through today? you know, there are, you know, as we're saying, you know, society is becoming very polarized. We're seeing people um, who are on the extreme right, the extreme left. Does EDAP represent them?
1: Yes, my boss said that. So I <laughs> confirm that, first of all. Um, yeah, no, I think in, in democracy we have to respect all points of view as long as they are legal. Um, having iller- illiberal or uh, far-fetched uh, opinions is is not a crime. Um, this is the big difference between democracy and autocracy mm. uh, or authoritarian regimes. Uh, we should not fear opinions of people and there is a difference between opinions and, and facts and we have to keep that in mind talking about COVID. Um, so yeah, I mean, borrowing uh, the, the the quote attributed to Voltaire, uh, uh, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to my death the, your right to uh, to say it. Uh, there's a similar ECHR judgment from 1970s that says basically the same. Yeah, no. So so the the, the EDAP recognizes this this problem. It's holistic, it's for this reason that it's a holistic plan. So we we want to create conditions where people can uh, form their opinions free of manipulation. I think that is the underlying logic and that has to do with the role of civil society and media, that has to do with fighting disinformation which is not only uh, lies, it's also uh, the, the the behavior of the actors in the system and, and the framing, it's the manipulation. Um, so it's empowering the people to be able to do that, uh, including those that uh, feel uh, frustrated or are on the fringes, uh, and I think with the crises this risk of fringes becoming bigger uh, is, is real, so it's also uh, a big task for the politicians and for democratic systems to deliver for these people. This is not something that the EDUP can do. It, it aims to empower people to, to form their opinions, but... <laughs> above that there has to be uh, a system that is able to deal you know with energy prices and with the external threats that uh, that we face but certainly it's not about uh, uh, that's the european approach we're not other parts of the world we're not regulating content we're regulating responsibilities and due diligence of of actors and empowering the people to be able to form the opinions they want
0: exactly um Perhaps Andres you could go um, you could follow up on, on what Daniel said there. Um, do you think eDAPs really looks to um, empower and restore trust? What are your thoughts? <sighs>
6: Well, empowerment, I don't really like that wording so much because it's a little bit a top-down. I like very much bottom-up, and I truly believe in bottom-up uh, societies and in civil society and democracy which organizes itself and participates and not which is involved by someone else. So so just a simple remark on, on this. Um, well... Perhaps three remarks, if, 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 if I might. First, on, on big tech, um, one thing which we say about uh, EDAP is that actually big tech needs uh, transparency. If there is an algorithm, uh, algorithm behind and if I suddenly, when, once I was clicking some populist or radical uh, whomever person, and I get served next time, I get five, six, seven times, again, stronger and more populist and more radical people. And uh, also others uh, get uh, clear information why I do get all this trash uh, on my social uh, <laughs> social networks. Why is it in- included and why is it offered to me that often simply after once clicking on the wrong video. So transparency is a key moment, and I think I very much hope uh, on this democracy action plan too, which was promised that there would uh, come soon because I think these are the things which might be regulated more specifically in how these transparency issues uh, regulate with big tech. When talking to business, that would be my second point. I think that's again a a difficult and strong question, not only about Brexit. Brexit, of course, showed that actually business most probably should have done more because the interests of business were deeply damaged by the Brexit uh, vote. And it showed clearly that just stepping aside and and looking on things, how they're happening and how some some populists might gain uh, audience, etc., That might not be enough also from company side, because it damages at the end of the day also company's interests and and, and, uh, employment possibilities and and gaining money. So business needs to be more active and involved in uh, defending democracy actively. It's not only about corporate social responsibility, but also about active uh, involvement. And uh, I think in business we need to talk also about collaboration risks because there's still so many companies, I don't want to name anyone uh, here around the table, but who are still trading in Russia and with their taxes supporting this criminal war. So those are extremely difficult questions, of course, which need to be answered, but it it shows that not everything has to be regulated, but we as citizens, and citizens are running businesses as well, have to be more aware of these democracy issues as such. First, big tech, we need more transparency. Second is uh, more responsibility from everyone because we have each and every one of us have to re-approve democracy every day. And the third, and I, I'm sorry for coming back, I hope we might nail down this one point during this discussion that we get a real civil society perspective in the, the next upcoming action plan. Uh, civil society organizations are, are saying that might, it might be also an option to have a, simply a civil society uh, strategy which uh, might and should be developed at EU level perhaps we can get already the next step knowing that actually the war has created a new reality and democracy needs double attention uh, as before and perhaps we can already get some slight insight in the Commission's plans on this and already yes we will go ahead uh, with this uh, strategy for civil society or fourth pillar however we call it
0: Okay, I can see that you really <laughs> want um, that, that question to be answered. Um, but would you like to go ahead? Sure. Sure, go yeah. ahead.
1: With all pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, first of all, I, I think transparency is, is uh, regulated very thoroughly in the Digital Services Act and the, and the Code of Practice vis-à-vis regulators, vis-à-vis users and vis-à-vis research. Um, so, so, just to, just to address that point. Um, yeah, no, I I don't exclude anything. It's early days. I mean, we've done a lot, I think, with with the with the EDAP, uh, but the threats to to democracies are evolving, as as uh, we all uh, acknowledged, and and they are more acute now uh, after COVID and with the with the Russian war against uh, Ukraine, um, and we have to close the loopholes that that we see that appeared. Um, I mean, the focus uh, at this point. Is really foreign interference, um, so that is uh, one, sorry, one co- component uh, that uh, that will be in that package, um, a legislative initiative uh, to look at uh, covert foreign influence, and uh, um, yeah, we're protecting uh, our economic interests uh, through screening of investments, and and we have to do the same with uh, with our values and democracy as well, so we will be looking at uh, transparency to make sure there's clarity on uh, who the foreign persons or organisms are who are present in our uh, systems. Uh, we don't have that yet, uh, so we will be looking at that. Um, and I don't think it's really about pillars, uh, but uh, but the second component of, of this package will be um, an opportunity to look at whether the EDAP, uh needs to be reviewed, uh, whether further steps are needed. Um, for sure, this will look very closely at civil society. I cannot exclude anything. I cannot exclude, uh, you know, that there will be a specific focus on civil society. I cannot promise anything either because we're only, you know, uh, making the scoping. Uh, But by summer next year you will see uh, these two elements, a review of what we have in the EDAP, where civil society, I would insist, is very strongly present both in the narrative and in the actions in all the all the three pillars uh, uh, as key actors in the fight against disinformation if you look at the first pillar on elections and and uh, it's actually I think the pillar is called not only election integrity but uh, participation of public in in democracy there's a lot of uh, well, there a was lot of thing. measures
0: I actually ask you about um Uh, under the first pillar, um, and political funding reviews and better transparency of political ads, are you putting spending caps in place?
1: We are not putting spending caps in place because we don't have any competence uh, on that. Uh, This is about transparency of uh, targeting with political messages by political actors and, and beyond. Uh, as regards uh, uh, funding caps, this is for the national authorities to to enforce each member state has their own rules we uh, We have also a parallel uh, legislation legislative proposal on European political parties where we have uh financing provisions uh limiting certain or or i would say tightening the screws. Um, and we have recommended that member states uh, be inspired by this. Uh, I think this is certainly an element that also in the context of this foreign influence needs to be looked at uh, further.
0: Okay, well, I'm, I'm very aware that our time is is running out quite quickly, so I'm going to start speeding through a few questions. Um, <coughs> so we'll go to the second pillar. I know you said you don't want to talk about pillars. Um, so perhaps, Cornelia, you could take this one. Um, if we look at press freedom across the EU27, um, it's quite stark. Um, and I can sort of set the scene for everyone. Reporters that Borders says in 2022, the EU is caught between polarisation to the west, war and propaganda to the east. It adds the bloc is caught between two extremes, the very good and the very bad. And the 2021 index does show you this. You had six EU member states in the top 10, um, Denmark, Sweden, Estonia, Finland, they make the top five. And then on the other side, you have countries like greece which are the worst performing member state at 108 hungary actually fares better at 85 um, malta 78 um, so can or does you know this action plan um can it better protect journalists and as you know and at a, at a side to that what sort of blanket protection can tech or, you know, social media give to journalists, for example, blocking people online? What is the role that you can play um,
3: in in helping journalists to do their jobs? <clears throat> yeah, the the developments on the risks that that journalists have is, is staggering, uh, I've, I've, and and not only in in areas where you would expect that, but frankly, also online. And this is. Curtails obviously, also freedom of expression if, if uh, journalists um, are threatened uh, mm. online in ways that they will eventually think twice to, to, to be uh, in that space. Um, I think there are a number of things that um, industry can do. First of all, um, maybe on the strengthening of the media pluralism part, um, the Copyright Directive um, is an essential tool, and it brings me a little bit, of course, there are a number of different tools that are there that will strengthen democracy that are not part of the uh, action plan. When, when you think, for example, about hate speech, um, uh, anything that relates to that, the DSA probably more generally <clears throat> will support uh, strengthening democratic um, resilience. But uh, on the media pluralism, I think uh, an important point was the fair remuneration uh, of uh, publishers. Um, So with the um, the implementation of the copyright directive and Article 17, in particular in member states, um, this is now an important way of strengthening uh, the economic resilience of, of media publishers. By being actually paid for the content that um, uh, platforms distribute uh, for free so uh, that's that 's something that we have absolutely supported, and we were very strong coming out in the context of Australian happenings in this space and um it's an very interest we are obviously again i it, it sounds really um strange and we discussed at the beginning that I'm always saying we're actually a, a smaller player in this yeah. space, but we are. So um Bing is a um has a under 10% market share in Europe. Uh, and so of course um we even don't play for, for the publishers the the significant role. So uh but at least you know now that this is implemented in a number of countries, not in all yet um we are starting to see uh, negotiations with publisher houses uh, happening. Uh, We just signed a memorandum with the publisher associations, for example, in Denmark. uh, That was a little bit easier because they are actually in one pot. So this is one of the areas that I think will significantly help uh, the the, the, the media landscape in being economically more resilient. At the same time, I will say that, of course, um, when you look at the Media Pluralism Observatory Report uh, 2021, you will see that there is an interplay between big platforms and big media houses. So we'll see how the Media Freedom Act will interplay with this. That's another aspect I think that requires a lot of discussion and, and understanding and how that ultimately will support the goals. And then last, I think again as a technology provider, we will be, uh, we are looking at technical tools to protect journalists. So. We, we had rolled out account guard for election processes for political parties, and we have started to roll out the same protections uh, also to journalists for their communication to be more secured. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, I'm going to quickly
0: just jump over to the last pillar, which is countering this information, and to an audience uh, member's question. Um, and, Christina, I think this is a question for you. Um, Alexander Nitz says... What are the reasons as to why the code was extended to misinformation, which EDEP defines as false content with no harmful intent, e.g. when people share false information with friends and family in good faith? Does the, I think, Commission endorse this? That's what I'm trying to say
5: look um i believe that when drafting the code we had to look and the signatories had looked into this phenomenon again and when it comes to definitions indeed the adapt has its uh, definitions also uh, the different platforms uh, have looked into this is a broader eye and we have seen it with covid that uh, when it comes to disinformation the intent is in any event a very difficult uh, thing to establish what is the intent behind but with covid we have seen it very clearly that even uh, information that is false spread with a good will can host uh, can cause a lot of harm you have seen the uh, magic cures uh, are related to covid uh, giving you the information but you what kind of medicine you should take or cannot take, and we have seen that this can cause uh, a lot of harm at the same time.
0: Especially what the US president said.
5: Yes, I (laughs) didn't want (laughs) to go into this, but indeed, uh, that is a very good example. We don't know the intent, but it's good that we don't have to look at the intent in this case. At the same time, it's important to point to the code that the response may not be the same for disinformation and misinformation, how to fight it. So here, uh, there can be also different responses, but I believe that in order to have a complex answer, we also, indeed, the signatories were right uh, to include also this element into the code. Okay,
0: Alexandria, I'm, I'm gonna come to you with a question now. Um, it's from Manuel Alejandro Carmona. Um, what possible weaknesses should be addressed in next year's review on the implementation of the EDAP? I don't want to be self referential know again <laughs> uh,
7: and to bring it back to the to the civil society, but um I do think that next to uh, journalists and media, civil society uh, becomes more and more vocal actually in playing the role of watchdog and checks and balances. a reason for which more and more civil society alongside media and the judiciary becomes an actor which suffers attacks from state and non-state actors. And this is quite well documented by civil society itself. We have our uh, Civic Space Watch that allows us to uh, look into all the legislative but also non-legislative threats that civil society is facing in using its right to associate and to articulate citizens' dissent, uh, in using its right to to get to the streets and articulate dissent in the streets. And this social dissatisfaction, unfortunately, is more and more met with heavy-handed policing and police violence, and not only in the East, but particularly in the West, in countries like France, the UK, or Spain. And so I do think that we really need to take this issue seriously. Um, The rule of law annual uh, review mechanism by the European Commission is looking at the issue but there again uh, civil society is kind of horizontal trend in the in the broader checks and balances so i really think that we would deserve a kind of a holistic strategy looking into um you know the specificity of civil society as an actor to defend democracy and so naturally we are looking with so much uh, high hopes in the review of the EDAP, but also in the adoption of the defense democracy pack And I would be eager to try to understand if it's only looking at foreign interference or also looking at the problems that we have inside in our own house. And if planning to uh, discuss with the society and civil society
0: uh, from its design through implementation phase. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I think because we are literally running out of time, what I'm going to do is now ask all of you to make your sort of final Um, closing statements, your sort of takeaway from the event. Um, Christina, I'll start with you first.
5: Yes, I think that this afternoon's discussion has very much shown that disinformation is a very complex phenomenon, and that's why it requires complex responses. I am convinced that with the code of practice we have a very good toolbox in place, we have a good recipe, we have good ingredients and we have a strong signatory base to implement it. At the same time, it's important to recall that the work has not stopped uh, with the new code of practice. Quite the contrary, Uh, all these commitments and measures have, have to be put in practice, it has to be implemented. And we very much count huh, on the strong signatory base to do the job in the upcoming weeks, months and years. Exactly, well said. Um, Andro, If you go next, please?
6: I would say that I hope that after this first great step with the action plan, the second will be really as wide as it is needed, as deep and as strongly supported by financial and le- legislative uh, uh, initiatives to to really be successful, because if we want to protect our democracy, who else will do it? And just three lessons from, I think, which we, we have learned from uh, the uh, Russia's aggressive war in Ukraine is first is deterrence is key, I think, in this action plan. So those who are against democracy, there is a clear threat that they will be caught or they will have to pay for it which whichever uh way we we see so it should be we should focus on deterrence we should focus on resilience and the real resilience we see in ukraine it's the people and this is again it's the society it's the civil society if there would be no support by the ukrainian so- so society there would no army would win no president would lead we need the society which has to be strengthened and really resilient. And I hope this will be a strong aspect in the document. And the third is, of course, democracy is expensive, but uh, freedom and peace, they are priceless. They are, well, you cannot, well, it's, it's beyond price. So it's, it's definitely worth every cent we invest.
0: Well said. Um, Alexandre Rooney, please go next. Yeah, maybe to come back to
7: something that you were mentioning in the beginning, uh, in this context of the democratic reckoning uh, that happens in Europe, um, maybe it's high time for Europe to overcome its purely economic dimension. It's already happening, of course, with the political union and the attempts to, to work to strengthen our democracies and the resilience of our societies. But I do think that an important Thing would be uh, to have a just as strong a political and social union as we have an economic union. So, uh, And all the action plans that are uh, targeting to deliver a better democracy should, should have this in mind.
0: Well, I think the Ukraine will definitely show that the EU can work together very well. Um, Cornelia,
3: your final thoughts? Um, sure, I will also do this twofold as I started. When it comes to regulation, I think we need to Acknowledge that regulation has to be practical in order to be implementable, so it has to be really not one-size-fits-all. Services need to be recognized in in their differences. I think the code of practice does a good job in acknowledging that. Uh, Also that it remains um, you know that the impact assessment is very holistic. I think that is something that generally can Uh, requires a little bit of improvement. And then on the other hand, I think um, we've of course looked inwards mainly in this discussion, but I think the Commission, the European Union needs strong partners across the world uh, with uh, other democratic partners. So the Copenhagen Democracy Pledge and any other effort, transatlantic or beyond, is I think really of essence to to safeguard also democracy within Europe. Okay, so Daniel, have you the final thoughts then?
1: Thank you. Uh, Three quick points. Um, I think we all share the the, the recognition that one of the lessons learned from the past years is that there is no magic bullet and we need all actors uh, on board and many actions simultaneously. Uh, downstream and uh, upstream, I fully agree on the the deterrence point. Um, Second, related to that, inaction is worse than action. Um, So I think we need to move fast. I hope that uh, the proposals on the Media Freedom Act, uh, the political ads, uh, can go through the legislative process uh, fast, because they are uh, really needed. And third point, and I think you mentioned it. Um, we need to address the the anxiety of people um, and solve the problems in a democratic way. The objective problems with prices and and other things. Uh, also, calling out undemocratic actions uh, early on, and we have seen in history where silence can lead. Uh, and this is what we will continue to do. And Are you this is some what member states. No, I'm alluding to the defense of democracy package, which will strengthen (laughs) this uh, direction of travel.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Well, thank you to all the panelists. Um, It's been a pleasure. I'm sorry that um, it seems our conversation um, had to be quickened because we started losing time. And thank you to everyone who has joined us here. um, And also thank you to our online audience. And don't forget, this is just the first of a series of debates on democracy and the role of tech. Um, I'll be back on October 25th for our next debate Digital Sovereignty and Transatlantic Relations, uh, relations, so don't miss that. Um, So until next time, thank you for watching.